Good evening. Open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. As Jacob's already noted, we're going to uh, look at uh, the last half of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 this evening. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I hope that our study will be profitable to you. I've appreciated your kindness in regards to our studies thus far, and I hope that... uh, uh, that uh, we're making some progress uh, studying this book and that you're having a, a renewed appreciation. I doubt very seriously we've talked about anything that you don't already know this week. If you've read through First and Second Peter, it is uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, but I've got a note on my desk that somebody gave me a long time ago that says people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed Uh, And that's very often the case for uh, Christians. And so that's what we're doing this week. Uh, And uh, I am uh, glad to have the opportunity to study with you. Uh, It's good to see our visitors with us, uh, folks that I've known uh, in other places and at other times. And uh, I thank you for being here. It's an encouragement to me. I know it's an encouragement to this congregation as well. If you go back to our beginning uh, of our study on Sunday in the first chapter of 1 Peter, uh, Peter begins this discussion with this uh, fundamental principle that God has fathered us and that we are now children of God and that that changes all kinds of things, new responsibilities, new relationships, uh, uh, new uh, uh, concerns in regards to the world, new problems to have to face. And that is certainly the case as we get to the second part of 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, and, and it is a, a kind of a curiosity to me that, uh, uh, that we don't have to deal with some of this the way that they did. And so there are passages in the Scripture like these uh, ch- two chapters that, that we probably don't get. Now, now, academically, we understand them. Intellectually, we understand them. But very few of us have emotionally had to deal with what Christians in Peter's day had to deal with. And so when we read these things, we forget that people were dying uh, for their faith. Uh, People were being ostracized from their community for their faith. Uh, Imagine being a Jew in a very Jewish part of the world, if you're in the Uh, Judea, for instance, and you become a Christian and suddenly you're a pariah in your community and nobody's going to do business with you. You you can't go down to the local, uh, you you know, boot maker and have have your sandals worked on. You can't go buy food in the the market wherever you bought food before and nobody's kids, nobody can let their kids be around your kids. And, you know, those things are very foreign to our way of thinking. And so, When we read these passages and cover the material like we're covering tonight, I think sometimes we don't appreciate what this must have really been like. My suspicion is that there's going to come a time, if this country stands long enough, that these are going to be very real practical problems for people again. I don't know that we are there yet. I don't believe that we are there yet. I hear people talk about persecution. I do not know anybody literally being persecuted for their faith in this country. I see opposition rising. And, and, and I think because that is the case, this has some real practical value for us when we kind of boil down what it is that Peter tells us in regards to suffering. And let, let me kind of introduce the thought this way. As God's people, those who have become heirs to the promises of God, those who have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, 
There are certain expectations that come along with that. When, when Paul starts his letter to the Ephesians, uh, the entire first chapter is essentially a listing of all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, and, and in fact, he makes a point that every spiritual blessing, and, and sometimes we think that's an exhaustive list. If there, there's not a spiritual blessing that we don't enjoy in Christ. And because God is our Father, there are certain expectations. Even in Jesus' teaching, if you go back to Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things will be added to you. What He's talking about there is God's provision for our needs. Uh, don't lay up treasures on the earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. God knows you need those things. God's going to take care of those things. And the more we understand God as a father, the more that makes perfect sense to us. I mean, I certainly have been that way with my children. And if you've had children, you've been that way with your children. And we have the expectation that God will be that way with us. And that's why we have issues when conflicts arise. Uh, I, I tried really hard to protect my girls from junk in this life. I even tried to protect them from some people uh, in this life. Uh, I even tried to protect them from some boys that wanted to date them uh, in this life. We protect our children. We do all we can uh, to ensure that life is good for them. And, and yet what we find and what Peter is addressing is that because we have these new relationships with other people, uh, new relationships with the world because of our new relationship with God, now there's conflict and that doesn't seem right. Why is it that God is letting His children deal with opposition? And that must have been a, a, a difficult thing for those people. I, I can't imagine somebody coming and killing my wife for her faith and that not having an impact on me. Uh, it would have an impact. Now, hopefully my faith would be strong enough to get through that. But I guarantee you that's a trial that I don't want to have to go through. And that's the kind of trial these people were going through. And, and so Peter's got some, God's got some advice to them about dealing with suffering and serving God in the middle of that. And, and let me offer this kind of at the outset. God tells us over and over that if we're faithful, we're going to face difficulty. He's already introduced that in 1 Peter chapter 1. If for a while, you may be grieved by various trials. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. I'm going to tell you a challenge that I see, and I just offer this kind of as my own observation. Peter doesn't say this, but I do believe that it is true. If you're serving God the way that you ought to serve God, the chances are pretty good you're going to have some problems with somebody at some point. Does that make sense? And, and Which leads me to kind of wonder if our lack of difficulty in our present age is because we sometimes serve in the closet. And that's just something to reflect on. But because uh, suffering is very much a result of standing up for what is right. And if we're not suffering, maybe it's because we're not being as brave as we ought to. Now, I offer that just as an observation, and you can think about that a little bit. 
Uh, as Peter moves on from where we finished last night, I, I would call your attention back to verses 8 and 9, which we finished with as we uh, ended our discussion about submission last night. Uh, and so he says, Finally, all of you have one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for, for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. The faces of the Lord is against those who do evil, and he even goes so far as to say, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And, and yet he has just introduced this idea that you're going to be reviled, but we don't return reviling for reviling. You're going to experience evil, but we don't return evil for evil. And that kind of launches the discussion going forward about the idea of suffering. And and, and, and I've tried to kind of boil down these verses from verse 14 of chapter 3 all the way through the end of chapter 4. I've tried very hard to kind of boil them down to three thoughts that seem to kind of pervade. And so here's my proposition about how we prepare ourselves for suffering. And, and they would be number one, beginning in verse 13, really down through the end of the chapter I think God tells us that suffering's coming and you better be prepared. That would be my first observation. So let's read this section. Uh, Peter goes on to say, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. It is better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit, by whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There's also an antitype that saves us now, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him. Notice that, that Peter starts off by, by saying... I want you to accept this possibility. Uh, and that's kind of the thought in verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you do good? Well, ideally, nobody's going to harm us for doing good. That, that's one of the great ironies uh, of, of the persecution of Christians in the first century. They were supposed to be law-abiding citizens. They were supposed to be doing good in their community. They were supposed to be in submission to those who are in authority. We've talked about all those things. And when that's the case, who's going to find fault with you? Uh, and, and, and so Peter even starts with that thought, who is he that's going to harm you? However, it's going to happen, and the first thing we need to do is not be shocked. Perspective is important. Preparation is important. Remember chapter 1, gird up the loins of your mind. Brace yourselves. That's kind of the thought that, that he enters into here. 
because it is confusing when I'm trying to do what is right and people are persecuting me anyway, or people are rejecting me, or people are opposing me, or people are not liking me. People don't want their kids with my kids. Uh, when, when, my, when my girls were in, two of them were in high school together, uh, they came home one day and, and one of them was kind of upset with uh, some of the other kids in school. Uh, and, and, and what they told them was, you Bowman girls are the most sheltered girls in all of Lumberton, Texas. And uh, my girls weren't exactly sure what to make of that, but they did know that that was criticism, that uh, they were not being accepted because they were sheltered. Now, I have to tell you, what the, object, what the argument was was whether or not they had been to Buffalo Wild Wings, okay? So we're not talking about, you know, huge sin here. But what I do appreciate is they're trying to do good, and yet there are people that are isolating them. And we've all been through that. And, and it doesn't make sense to us, and it is confusing to us when we're trying to do right and God's letting things happen. You go back to the Old Testament. We were talking at supper about, y'all are about to start studying minor prophets, or you are studying minor prophets. Uh, and and the, 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 the prophecy of Haggai is, is, is about, uh, uh, the, excuse me, the prophecy of Habakkuk is, is, is Habakkuk's plea to God about why God's not taking care of the evil in the world. And God's reply is, oh, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take every way that's going to make your ears tingle. I'm going to bring the Babylonians on you. And then Habakkuk's next question is, well, wait a minute. How can you take a, a people that's more wicked than we are to punish us for our wickedness? Well, there's a lot of things that God allows to happen in this world that don't make sense to us. The story of Job is a story about suffering where the man feels like it is undeserved. And if you just look at it from the way that God describes Job, he didn't deserve what he got. And, and, and when those things happen, we, we start questioning ourselves. Have I messed up? Am I not serving God the way that I ought to? Is God displeased with me? Why is this? Why, why, am, I go, why am I going through this? One of my closest friends... Lost his son to cancer a few years ago. Uh, 30 years old when he died. Died nearly two years ago. I don't understand. He was a great kid. Very faithful to the Lord. And, and I have watched my friends, and I've gone through some of it myself because he was the closest thing I had to a son. And you just you ask yourself over and over and over, why? And you, you can't come up with a good answer, and it is very frustrating. And if we're not careful, what happens is... It causes us to start questioning our trust in God. It starts us questioning God's righteousness. It causes conflict in us. And, and if we're not prepared for it, then it'll take its toll on us. And so Peter goes on to say, look, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, here's the perspective you need to appreciate. You are blessed. Which makes absolutely no sense in our mind whatsoever. But Peter's not the first one to say that. Do you remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of, uh, of, of unkind things about you for my name's sake. Rejoice, be exceeding glad. Uh, th this is a concept that God expects His people to appreciate that, that we are more concerned about the way God sees us than we are about the way the world sees us or about the circumstances of life, even if we don't understand why they are what they are. God wants us to understand the perspective that we need to adopt is 
God's looking at your faith in the midst of difficulty, and God considers you blessed. And I think what that means is not so much the idea of happy, but accepted. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn. Well, you can't be happy and sad at the same time. But you can find satisfaction in knowing where you stand with God. And so you can have conviction even in the midst of, of difficult emotion and still appreciate what is right. And I think that's what Peter's saying here. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. So don't be afraid, but rather, and here's the preparation part, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Now, you've heard a thousand uh, lessons on this, and I, I don't have anything new to offer, uh, but I, I, I do appreciate the concept here. We, we understand the word sanctify means to set apart, right? To make holy. Everybody on the same page here? Yes? Shake your head yes. Just humor me, okay? Why does Peter tell us when you're suffering, set God apart in your heart? And, and I think the idea is, as we've already talked about, we need to make sure that we don't connect God's work and God's... Uh, view of us with what's happening in this world. God needs to be set apart from the circumstances of our life. We cannot take Him off the throne just because things are not the way that we think that they ought to be and that we don't feel like He's giving us a fair shake. Instead, what we have to do is we have to be prepared to defend Him. The word give a defense is legal language. And it means that you need to be able to explain to someone why it is that you trust in a God that is allowing you to suffer. I mean, in practical terms, that's the challenge here. So, so let's stop here and, and ask ourselves a question. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but there's two questions here. Number one, can you sit down and tell someone why you have faith in God? From the Scriptures, don't say, oh, I just feel it. Okay, that, that's not going to carry any weight. Can you take your Bible and offer a defense of why it is that you trust that God is God and that we have our salvation in Jesus Christ? You would think that this would be a given. But it shocks me how often my phone will ring and it'll be some Christian on the other end of the line that's been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, and they say, I'm having a discussion with so-and-so over here, and, I, and, and, and I, can, you, can you offer me a passage to answer this simple question? And, and, and what always pops in my mind is this right here. If you're a Christian, you need to be able to defend your faith. And if you can't defend your faith, you're not ready for suffering. Because that's taking it to a whole nother level. Because not only in suffering do you need to be able to defend your faith, but here's question number two. Can you defend your faith when it looks like your God has deserted you? Life's terrible. Where's God? Well, let me tell you where God is. Let me, let me tell you what I'm learning from this. Let me tell you why I still hold my conviction and why I can offer a defense of my God and tell you about my hope that I have and can do it with meekness and with fear of my God. And I want it to make an impression upon you because this is the way that I think God works. If you don't get anything else out of this section, 
please get that. And here's why. Because in my mind, our culture is going farther and farther away from any real knowledge of God, Bible-based knowledge of God. And it used to be that if somebody asked you a question about your faith, you could take your Bible and show them the answers. Uh, and if they believed in the Bible, that was pretty much the end of it. They might not agree with you, but they could at least see your defense. But now, now we've got to, to go back to why I even believe that the Bible is God's Word, because there's just a lot of people out there that do not accept that. And all these fundamental evidences, uh, classes and sermons that we've heard for so long, and you think, well, nobody, I'm never going to use that. Well, you're about to use it, and it's going to become a defense of your faith. And if you're suffering, you're dealing with, 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 with opposition, you're dealing with persecution, you're dealing with difficulties in your life, and it looks like your God has deserted you, and all these people out here don't know God, you're going to have to start with a fundamental introduction to God. So how many of you can do that? It's a bit sobering, isn't it? And, and it scares me for what, for, for, for what we're going to deal with going forward. Peter's basic concept here is you, you need to be prepared. This is coming, and when it comes, you need to be prepared. This is an opportunity. We, we mentioned this yesterday. You're suffering, people are going to want, how do you deal with what you're going through? Well, let me tell you about my God and how I deal with it. And that's why he says in verse 16, having a good conscience, whereas they might defame you as an evildoer, when they, that, that, when they see your good conduct, and, they, and essentially in the context, hear your argument, that they, they, they're ashamed instead of, finding reason to revile you. It scares me for our people that we don't do this. That we can't do this. Now we have difficulty in our life and we just whine and groan and murmur about it instead of falling back on a well-grounded faith because we understand all of these principles that goes in to how God helps us to learn to trust Him. You know, that's the point of Job. At the end of, of Job, when, when Job's basically saying, I just wish God would sit down and give me an explanation. You know what God's answer to Job is? God's answer is, I'm God... You're not. There's your explanation. And Job accepted that. Repented, he said, in ashes because he recognized, I need to trust God. I don't have all the answers, but I can tell you why I trust Him. And so be prepared. Good conscience, good works. Verse 17, it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Remember we talked about that last night. All these different uh, circumstances of oppression, he keeps saying, do good and submit. Do good and submit. Do good and submit. You're suffering? Keep doing good. And have a good conscience. And be able to tell people why you have faith. Uh, when, when you get to the end here in verse 18 through 22, and this is, this is where everybody, when you, you say, well, we're going to talk about 1 Peter 3. I've already had two questions about this this evening. Okay, well, what do you think this means? Uh, I think it means that Noah and Jesus are both really good examples of suffering. 
That's what I think it means. Uh, Noah, in, uh, first he starts off with Christ. Christ suffered the just for the unjust. Why? To bring us to God. Why is it that we with a good conscience sanctify the Lord God and give an answer to everyone and ask why we have hope so we can bring them to God? Remember, this is an opportunity for doing good. And that's what Jesus did. Being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. And, and, and that leads Peter to this concept about, you know, God spoke to people in Noah's day. And Noah and eight people, seven other people, they suffered. And, and God delivered them. And I think the whole point of all that is God's going to deliver us. Remember, perspective. We're blessed in the eyes of God. And that leads to chapter 4 and the, the second observation that I would make. So begin reading with me in verse 1, and let's read down to verse uh, 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh for us, arm yourselves also with the same mind. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of a time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. We've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In regards to these, they think it's strange. You do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel also was preached to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. The end of all things is at hand, so be serious and watchful in your prayers. Above all things, have fervent love for one another. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability that God supplies. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. What's the second thing that Peter kind of focuses on in regards to the potential of suffering? Well, basically what he says is you need to arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. You, you need to, to not be shocked when the suffering comes. And, and, and be ready to defend yourself. And the way that you do that is you, you adopt the same mentality that our Lord had. Now what's curious to me about this section is He doesn't necessarily specify what the mind of Christ was. Uh, but if you go back into the end of chapter 3, when He talks about Christ uh, suffering once for sins because in verse 17, if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good, what we understand is the mind of Christ was that He was willing to do whatever God's will demanded of Him, even if it ended up in suffering. And we know that it did. Suffering and death and shame uh, and all of those things. When He was God, He's the King. But people didn't understand and He was willing anyway to suffer because it was God's will. And so Peter says... This is the mind you need to have. Um, how do you do that? Well, we, we always like, you know, uh, two or three points of, of uh, how-tos. How-to books are great. Until uh, and there's not two or three points ever offered, and then, and then we're just... Uh, I don't have two or three points. I'll tell you how you adopt the mind of Christ. It is purely an act of will. In fact, most of discipleship, as far as I can tell, is simply an act of will. We're made in the image of God. We have a choice. 
We can do whatever it is that we want to do, and we determine that what we're going to do is we're going to live this way with this mentality. And what that says is, if, I'm, if I need to suffer because it's the will of God, even if I don't ever understand why, we're very much like Job. Okay, if things are going to get bad, I'd really like to know why. Well, we may never know why. You may never know why you're isolated or, or you're ostracized or if real persecution comes, you're having to suffer for the cause. But it doesn't really matter if that's what it is that God has and if I can bring glory and honor to my Lord by giving myself to the will of God and it prompts suffering in my life, then just bring it on because what my life is about is bringing honor to my God. And he's already said that back in chapter 2. In, in verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, when they speak against you as evildoers, they might by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. We are a royal nation, a holy priesthood, God's own possession to show forth the praises of Him who has called us. And, and that really brings us to another real fundamental question. Is that really what your life is about? I would say the chances are pretty good since you're, you know, sitting in a church building on a Tuesday night at a gospel meeting that you probably have a leg up on this. But we still need to ask ourselves the question. Tomorrow, when you get up, what's your objective? Is it whatever the job my occupation demands of me? Is that, is that, that's what I got to do today. Is it the vacation that's coming up? I just got to get through these two weeks because vacation's coming up. Is it, I, I, you know, I got to make sure my kids are fed. Well, what is it that's going to drive you tomorrow? And I'm going to tell you what ought to drive us. I'm going to bring honor to my God tomorrow. It may be in my occupation. It may be the way I deal with my children. It may be how I use my money. It may be any of a thousand different things. But all of those things need to be preliminary to the ultimate objective that I am a child of God and I have to bring honor to my God this day. Whatever that demands. Arm yourself with the same mind. And, and he goes on to say, you know, the problem's fairly easily understood. Uh, we don't live the way we used to live. That we, that we, we cease from sin. We no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men. We live for the will of God. And, and, and yet, all these people that we know, all these people that we are surrounded by in our life, they, they are still involved in all of these things that we used to be involved in. And verse 4 says, they think it's strange that you don't run with them. And we get this, and I think it is true. I don't think that this is an exaggeration. Uh, I think it is especially the case with younger people. You know, when we talk to our young people about trying to be holy and trying to be an example and trying to dress in certain ways and act in certain ways and don't do certain things. Uh, and, and, you know, people don't like it and they criticize you. And the reason that they don't like it and criticize you is they think it's strange that you won't run with them anymore. You become a conscience to them. And that's a problem to the world when God's people are God's people the way that we ought to be. We stand in condemnation. Not because we're pointing fingers and telling everybody how wonderful we are and how terrible they are. We stand in condemnation by living lives 
trying to avoid sin when everybody else is swept up in it. And when you get that that's what's going on, then you can reasonably expect that people are not going to like me if I'm doing what's right. But I would remind you yet again, (laughs) that just presents an opportunity. Now I get to defend my faith. Now I get to talk about my God. Now I get to tell you why I don't live the way I used to live. Suffering and and my holiness is going to offer opportunity. And Peter goes on to make this point. The end of all things is at hand. And, And maybe this is the admonition to us to, you know, stand your ground. Don't give up. Because ultimately, God's going to intervene in what's happening and the suffering's going to end and the opposition's going to end because God's going to come in judgment. Be serious. Be watchful in your prayers. And then, and Peter does this. If you haven't noticed this yet, Peter does this three or four times in the first letter. He'll offer kind of a paragraph of admonition to the brethren about the brethren. Uh, Have fervent love for one another. Be hospitable to one another. Use your gifts for one another. Why? Because we're struggling with what's going on in the world around us. And we have a relationship with one another, and we love one another, and we're helping one another. The rest of the world may reject me, but my brethren are going to stand by me. And I'm going to stand by my brethren. And I need to be attuned to those who are struggling. We need to pay attention to these young people that are trying to be holy. And make sure when you see them at services that you're encouraging them because some of them deal with more ostracization than we do as adults. Use your gifts. Be hospitable. Don't be grumbling all the time. Be good stewards. Speak as the oracles of God. Minister to one another. Why? Because, buddy, when the world starts getting against us, circling the wagons is important. And then Peter goes on, beginning in verse 12, to what I will call this last section. What he has said so far is that you need to be prepared. Okay, When suffering comes, even though it shouldn't, you need to be prepared, so make sure you can defend your faith. Remember that in the eyes of God, you're blessed. And then he goes on to say, you need to arm yourself. You need to adopt this mind that says, I'm going to do the will of God no matter what the consequences are, and I understand why everybody in the world around me doesn't like that. Judgment's coming. So I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And then finally, beginning in verse 12, I would offer the last observation is, when suffering comes, rejoice. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when His glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part, He's blasphemed, but on your part, He's glorified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. The time's come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely slaved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. He, he starts off where he started the section back in, in, in chapter 3 and verse 15. D- don't be surprised. 
And, and I think the reason he repeats that is the, the very reason that we all repeat things. When something's important and we want to get, get through to people, we will say it again and again, and it ought to catch our attention. You know, I hope it doesn't happen, but I'm not going to be surprised if in my lifetime, in this country, Christians have to suffer. I mean literally suffer for their faith. And, 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 and so we, we need to appreciate it and once again, don't be caught by surprise. Don't misunderstand what's going on. Don't, don't Be ready. It's just repetition. But here's what he adds. In verse 12, he calls the, 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 the persecution or the difficulty of their suffering a fiery trial. And we know as we read our New Testament history that as the first century went along, things got worse and worse for the Christians. It, it, it may well be that at Peter's day, and, and even if he is writing when Nero is still ruling, uh, as I understand it, the, the persecution under Nero was a fairly limited persecution. Uh, some of the Christians in Asia Minor, which would be the recipients of these letters, they might have, been, they might have suffered some at the hands of the Jews, might have suffered some at the hands of the Romans, it's hard to tell. But what we do know is that 20 or 30 years later, by the time Domitian comes along, it's going to be empire-wide suffering. So what he's saying is, you know, if things get worse, if the trial gets fiery, don't think, don't think that it's strange, but rather rejoice in it. I wish I knew how to tell you to do that. It is purely, once again, an issue of determination that's based on faith. We don't rejoice in suffering because suffering makes us happy. You know, it's not like the hogs winning a football game. All right? It, it, it is, okay, none of this makes sense, but here's what I do know. God told me that this was going to happen. Jesus told the apostles. Jesus made it a part of the of the Beatitudes, that we're going to suffer as, as, as followers of Jesus, as disciples. And so I'm, I know that this is going to happen. I already understand why the world sees me the way that they do. So I know why people treat me this way. And, and I know that it's an opportunity for doing good. And what I need to do is I need to change my attitude about the whole thing. I, I need to learn that this is a badge of honor with God. And that's exactly what he goes on to say. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That's what the apostles did. You remember uh, in the early chapters of Acts when they have to go before the council a couple of times and one time they're beaten and they go back to the brethren counting it worthy that they were, counting it joy that they were worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. It, it is your dedication and your devotion and your your connection to the Lord so great that, that if, if you feel like you are being mistreated because of Christ, it prompts joy in you because that's what man did to, to the Lord. Do you really feel that way? I, I would suspect that most of us don't. But we should. Here's one of these ironies in Scripture. This is a, an emotion that God commands, which says the feeling starts off with the right attitude and the right understanding 
and the, when I have the right understanding and the right attitude, then the joy becomes something that I can legitimately experience. We are following in the footsteps of generations of people who have stood up for the Lord and gotten hammered for it. Read about the prophets. Read about Moses. You know, we think of Moses and what a wonderful life Moses had. Don't you know those 40 years in the wilderness were the most miserable years of his life? Because he's just hearing people gripe at him constantly. And, and yet, he's, he, was a, he, he was a faithful spokesman for the Lord. And you can look at his life now and rejoice, and that is the tradition of godly men and women throughout the generations that they have stood up for what is right, that they have defended their God even when it didn't look like their God cared about them, and they have made a defense of their faith, and they are reasonably expecting His return that they can share in His glory, and it prompts joy in them. And that is exactly where we started Sunday morning in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this salvation, he says, you greatly rejoice, even if for a while, if need be, you're grieved by all kinds of trials. Isn't it interesting that Peter comes full circle when he gets to the end of chapter 4? If you're approached for the name of Christ, blessed you are. The Spirit of glory of God rests upon you. They may be blaspheming you, but on your part, God is being glorified. And in verse 17 and 18, he says, judgment's coming. And man, if you're squeezing, squeaking by, imagine, imagine how bad it is going to be for them. But the, but the emphasis is, you're blessed. You're going to share in His glory if you partake in the suffering. And so these reminders are important to us. I think probably you're sitting here at this point thinking, well, you know, maybe this will all be practical in my life and maybe it won't. And that's true. But I'm going to tell you the danger of not looking at this and taking it seriously and giving it due consideration and doing the things that we've talked about, setting God apart, preparing to offer a defense of your faith, especially when you're suffering, adopting the mind of Christ, not allowing yourself to be surprised when something bad happens. If you don't do that now, what's going to happen is you're going to be taken off guard when the difficulty comes and your faith is going to be tested in ways that it was never tested and you won't be ready. And it is hard to get ready when you have been knocked off of your perch and, and you are emotionally unprepared for the difficulties that you are facing. If you don't get ready ahead of time, you won't be ready at the time. And that's why this is important for us. Even though we are living in an age where still, as Christians, we can pretty much be legitimately, seriously faithful and probably not have to suffer a lot for it. The question is, if that time comes and when that time comes are you going to be ready so I appreciate your attention I recognize that this is one of those lessons kind of like we talked yesterday about government and submission that we don't talk a lot about in gospel meetings uh, because for a lot of us in this room it's probably not something we're dealing with I pray you never have to but, but I, I tell you what I pray more that if you have to that, that you stand up that you don't lose your faith
that you see the opportunities to, to, to show people the grandeur of the God we serve and why He would let us suffer to bring glory and honor to Him. So let's be ready. Thanks for your attention. If you're subject to the invitation tonight, we could help you. We invite your response while we stand and sing.